Uh, so hello everyone and welcome to Coaches on the Couch. I'm Rachel and I'm Louise and we're really excited about today's episode. It's slightly different and we're talking about a topic that Louise and I are really curious about. We're joined by Harbinder Birdie, senior partner at Hawkins Brown and Apinda Bara, who's fairly recently joined the practice as an architectural apprentice. So hi both, welcome. Welcome to the virtual couch. Hello, thanks for Hi, having uh, us. Thank you. Really excited to be here. Really excited yeah, to us, share our... Us too. Thank you. Before we get into anything else, let's chat couches. Harbinder, maybe let's come to you first. Tell us something brief and interesting about your couch. I spent a lot of money on it and it's really uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> and my wife loves it. Um, so that means that we have to have it. Um, but I want to sort of take it back, but I'm not allowed to. So that just shows um, form, function, style doesn't always uh, go together. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, sounds like my couch. My husband hates it. Uh, and Abinda, tell us about tell us about your couch. Yeah, well, it's actually an interesting question. Now I think about it, I, I don't actually spend a lot of time sitting on my couch. So um, as you know, we're working at home. You kind of on your desk. You don't want to be in the living room because you know good to have that barrier and then once you're done at the end of the day I work on the weekend you don't want to be at home you don't want to be sitting on the couch so you mm. kind of just you know trying to get out get some sun sunlight where it's kind of safe and possible to do so so yeah but now the colder days are coming I'm trying to I think I'm going to put my feet up a bit more on the couch and you know enjoy that so yeah so I think that's something interesting not perhaps how it looks but how I kind of utilize it absolutely absolutely I like yeah. the idea of feet up more often sounds good yeah <laughs> definitely coming um, okay so let's just introduce Hawkins Brown obviously an award-winning practice established by Roger Hawkins and Russell Brown in 1988 now has offices in London Manchester Edinburgh and Los Angeles and the practice some great projects in all sectors obviously under its belt but Harbinder I know you lead on infrastructure so we thought we'd highlight the three Crossrail or Elizabeth Line stations that you're designing and delivering, including the awesome challenge that is Tottenham Court Road, no doubt. Um, and as well as your work within the practice, you also lecture in the UK and internationally. You're a member of the RIBA Education Committee and part of the Speakers for School initiative, encouraging children from state schools to join the design and construction industries. And um, we're assuming that Hawking Brown's decision to offer apprenticeships in architecture is part of this commitment into supporting different routes into the profession. And I know that Upinda, you're a part one architectural assistant with Hawkins Brown, as well as being an apprentice. And I should declare an interest here because I'm a big advocate for um, apprenticeships and actually work as a coach tutor for PR apprentices. So I have like a, another job. Um, yeah. doing that but my apprentice is a level four and I understand yours is a, a level seven which is a bit a bit higher and my understanding is that apprenticeships offer a mix of traditional classroom learning alongside opportunities to put that learning into practice in the workplace and um, because I don't know we don't know very much about architectural apprenticeships I thought it would be helpful uh, Pinder if you could start by telling us a little bit about your story and your route into into this apprenticeship. Of course, yeah. So I start kind of from the beginning. So um, really quickly, well, from my sixth form, sort of done my A levels, maths, psychology, economics. At that point, I wasn't quite sure. It was, quite, it was kind of a big sort of turning point in my kind of 
life I guess um because I decided to take a gap year I remember I was writing a personal statement and I was thinking I'm deciding now what I want to study I took a step back I took a gap year and in my gap year I file an error sort of the things that I like and architecture really stood out at that point so did quite a lot of things in in that year you know Cambridge University did some short course in architecture traveled um did some experience shadowing and then ultimately that led me into Coventry University where I did my undergraduate and this summer I graduated with yeah an undergraduate degree in architecture and now I am at Hawkins Brown doing the level seven apprenticeship also at South Bank as well to do my MArch um, at the same time so so yeah. when you finish both of those when you finish your apprenticeship you'll be uh, um, an RIBA part three architect won't you so fully, fully qualified it will be fully qualified. So the level seven architecture apprenticeship will encompass the part two and the part three um, all together. And so when it's finished after three and a half years at Hawkins Brown, I will be a qualified architect. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a long commitment, isn't it, Harbinder? Three, three and a half years for both. It's a long commitment. And, and uh, of course, we were, we were curious about uh, the practice's decision to adopt the apprenticeship programme. Yeah, it, it is. It is a long commitment. I, if I think about the amount of graduates, I mean, I, I started off um, in the practice as a part two. Um, so I've been with the practice, God, I think 22 years. So LinkedIn keeps on reminding me. But I've seen the sort of practice grow. When I was, when I started, we were 19 and now we're, I think we're something like 270. And typically we have about, so I'd say about so between 60 and 70 young graduates in the practice at, on a yearly basis. And all those graduates, they come um, completing their MArch, and then they normally spend about two years doing their part three qualifications, and then they become registered. And the average length, I mean, the minimum time it takes to become an architect is seven years. The average that it takes currently is 9.04 years. And I think what the RIBA is saying and, and the ARB is actually, um, how do we um, speed that up? I mean, if this was the medical profession and, you, you know, you meant it's better to take five years, but it ends up taking eight or nine years, you know, you'd have people from the government turn around and go, how come we can't get the damn doctors through? In fact, we need them. <laughs> and, then, and actually, it's the same with, with, with architecture, because what you really need is, is, is people in the profession with the suitable skills. And there's a big demand. I mean, before COVID shut down, I think the unemployment rate within architects in the UK was 1%. Yeah. So there's a huge demand. And currently at the moment, we're going through a period in terms of um, organisations and, and, and practices sort of looking at the work that they've got coming through. But obviously, we're going to come out of it in, in the spring. I'm sort of optimistic. However, what we felt in Hawkins Brown is that there was sudden, and, and actually, I worked with a group which was actually led by, uh, mm -hmm. by Fosters, you know, and there was a collection of practitioners who came together who who looked who's basically set up the level six and the level seven and the level six is essentially taking somebody at the age of 18 and after three years of them spending four days a week in practice one day a week at university they effectively get a ba honors equivalent and then what they do is that they then move to the level seven and i think what we've done at hawkins brown for the past couple of years is is look to be taken on apprentice at the level seven so that means they've got a degree and what we do is that we look at the portfolio, we meet them, we real, you know, we, we sort of evaluate whether they've got the suitable skills to go on for the next few years. And then what we do is that we made that investment. And obviously with, with a PINDA, you know, it's a really big investment because essentially it's a three and a half year um, duration where, again, it's four days a week in practice, pay one day a week at university. And what a PINDA has to do is that she has to do work 
And at the same time, on the Friday and on the Saturday and the Sunday, she's thinking all these sort of crazy thoughts because it's university, you know? And what she has to do is be able to balance the two. And then at the end, what happens in the part, in, really in the sort of last six months to the last year or the three and a half years, it's when you start doing your part three, which is your sort of professionalism. It's about practice, management, law, contract, etc. And there's meant to be a gradual glide path to that. Whereas if you look at currently at the moment when people do their final part three examinations, I would say it is probably the most stressful time in their professional careers. Why? Because they do all the examinations and then they have a 45 minute interview with two practitioners. And it is in the gift of those two practitioners, whether they, how can I say it, become an architect or not. Now, I've been a, a part three examiner for the past 20 years. And so I sort of mentor the part threes and I, and I think our pass rate at Hawkins Brown is 99.97%. And so all of them, even the most exceptional graduates get very, very stressed. And I think the apprenticeship route is a way of relieving that stress for graduates, which I think is a good place to be because to be honest, it's probably unnecessary. Yeah. in terms of building my stress. Mm-hmm. How is that, Hipinda? How do you balance the two? I mean, I've, I'm, I've, you know, I'm fairly new to Hawkins Brown, fairly new to South Bank as well, doing the um, MRH. And what I can say for the past few weeks, I think, in all honesty, if you're interested and if you like a variety within your working day or your, so say your work, your week, you like tackling tasks for different information different kind of where different parts of your sort of creativity then I think it's enjoyable rather than challenging to some extent it is those four days when you're in practice it is some of the projects you know the project that I'm working on is quite demanding especially when you're new especially when you're working from home there are a lot of challenges and when when you when you finished and you realize okay it's the weekend it's time to chill well not really because I need to do you know my my coursework at uni but if you're good at organization time management you can find a way to balance all of those things enjoy them which is the most important and it should be the most important for anybody and also have time for yourself and how I do it personally is just by doing bit by bit by bit not leaving it to the last minute I think and I think undergraduate taught me that very well where I was kind of juggling my part-time job undergraduate study third uh, third year was so intense for me I was doing all these other more different modules and I really wanted to invest my time into them so I wanted to do the best that I could not just hitting the learning objectives it was much more for me than that and also I was doing very like sort of other student-led societies that kind of stuff at uni so it really taught me going forward into this apprenticeship it's kind of going to be the same thing but just a little bit more and more intense right so yeah, I'm here for four days a week. My, you know, my energy is invested in, into it. And then once I'm out, kind of maybe an hour or two, after, not even that, like an hour after work, do some uni stuff, maybe go on the weekend. And if you keep that pace up, I think any like, you know, going to be fine, really. Tutors are there. That's why you have good mentors as well at Hawkins Brown. So you don't feel, you don't have to have the unnecessary stress that um, Harbinu was um, talking about earlier. I guess that mentoring role, um, you know, obviously this is a podcast fundamentally about leadership, but I guess that mentoring role, when you've got apprentices who are, who are making, who are doing that juggling and meeting those challenges of both university and working in practice is really important because you don't know what's going on when they leave 
when they leave, obviously not the one we have here present, but how stressy they can get. And you have to look out for the mental well-being as well, that they're not actually pushing themselves too hard. And I guess that does make more of a challenge, does it, for mentoring, Harvinder? Yeah, I mean, it, it does. I mean, I, I've been sort of reflecting on this and I was just thinking about, I think people always talk about sort of like bias. I mean, it's what you talk about as coaches, as in the exposures you've had, you've got to be sort of mindful of them. And, and actually, I would say that I probably am not really equipped to be a great mentor in this sort of situation. I mean, I think I grew up in Thatcher's era, yeah? I grew up in the sort of like 80s. We went to an environment at university which long there was a long hour culture, yeah? We went into professional practice in a deep recession. And um, practice, you know, 20 years ago is very different from practice now. And so the culture of practice and the terms, you know, in terms of like how do you make sure people are able to enjoy work, to give their all, uh, be supported, go home happy and motivated, requires actually a network of individuals. So I think the gap between me and a pinder is actually too, is, is too big. So what I've done is that I charged a younger architect who's just qualified, Tarveen Verdi, who her being a pinder's day-to-day mentor. Because actually what happens is that a pinder rightly so, even though I think that I'm as sort of relaxed as can be, will be intimidated in terms of asking me questions. And I've got to be mindful of that. So the day-to-day contact for any problems that a pinder has is with somebody that is closer to her. And I think one of the key things about friendship is being able to have people that are closer in terms of that sort of social age space, because they've been through that journey more recently and they understand I really don't so I I very much as a mentor have an overview where Tarveen reports back to me just in terms of the challenges that are being faced and how what we can do as a practice is support the apprentice that's really interesting how do you see that Opinda how do you see this we're quite interested in leadership from different generations and and that sort of thing how do you see those different levels and the different people inputting well when I even before I joined actually I was really happy to know that I was actually going to get a mentor when I um, first started here there's just that added guide or that kind of leader and when I say leader I don't mean someone delegating tasks upon you it's about if I'm if I think I'm not capable of doing something they they will then tell me show me what the possibilities are and if they weren't there I I wouldn't know that and if I couldn't communicate that with somebody who is my mentor then yeah I would be you know I wouldn't be as productive I wouldn't be as efficient I wouldn't know pathway that I'm going to without somebody being there for me and again I think as he said I, I really agree like it's also about having that good communication and someone someone that you're very comfortable with communicating and we're all human is you know we're going to have that and I want someone who's very comfortable with me and vice versa for me to openly say I'm not so comfortable with this I think I made a mistake here could you please show me and if you have that once you're starting in a practice you will go and push yourself so much more as opposed to if you didn't so they become mm. your coach and your role model as well as as well as yeah. your mentor I suppose they kind of bridged the gap between the generation of architects that set out in Thatcher's Britain and had to scrabble around and build from a standing start where the long hours culture was much more acceptable than I mean I'm not saying there isn't one now um, but it's less acceptable now I think so I suppose they kind of bridged that gap I saw a quote somewhere 
recently and I can't remember where, so I'm not going to be able to quote it correctly. But it was about this concept of companies learning need to be informed by the future, not by the past. And it's how that sort of leading organisations, it wasn't relating to architecture, but leading organisations into reverse mentoring. I just wondered if that's a sort of concept that Hawkins Brown have adopted formally or that, that happens informally and what you thought about reverse mentoring. It's, it's something at Hawkins Brown that we've been, I mean, what we do is that we actually have various groups, effectively forums where people from different age groups, backgrounds can actually come together to share their thoughts about the practice. So we have a practice management group, so essentially, like, essentially a board, but we actually have one which is called the junior practice management group. So essentially mm. it's young graduates, et cetera, young architects coming together and they've got an open forum and they actually get a budget. They actually get a, you know, a pot of cash to say, okay, what do you want to do? You spend it. It's entirely up to you guys there. What happens is that there is a reporting line. There's a communication channel, one from the board all the way down to the junior PMG, but then also the other way around. So we here we go, actually, I mean, like 40% of the practice want us to have more plants. How come no one told us this? Yeah, but actually suddenly 40%, they have a voice, right? And so I think in our practice, what we've realized that because typically what we do is that we take on younger graduates and younger architects into the practice and we give them lots of responsibility and we nurture them. And we, want us, we want them to stay for a long time. We realize that their voice is essential and that the things that, that they care about is probably different to the things that somebody 30 years older care about simply because... They're older. They grew up in Can a different Can you think generation. of an example of, of that? I think more than ever now, if you look at things like sustainability, if you think about things about um, housing, the general division between the rich and the poor, and is it because schools of architecture are, are putting these things more on the agenda? No, I don't think they are. I mean, I think lots of professors now are going to email me after this goes out and they're going to be really annoyed <laughs> uh, that they're actually... I don't think schools of architecture really are hitting, but I think what it is is generally the young are thinking about their future and actually what they don't really want is material what they really want are just better communities better city and they are really thinking about the environment for them because they realize they're going to live to the 95 right so guess what in 20 years time if they don't do something about it now it's going to hurt whereas if you're sort of 50 plus you're it's it's sort of not on your radar and I, I'm sure these conversations are happening at the dinner table with 56-year-olds when their kids come back from university. I'm sure those conversations are happening. What yeah. we want to do in practice is just have those conversations be up and say, as a practice, how can we listen to this and shape the future? Because we're able to shape the future. We have that responsibility. Uh, we're in the position of privilege here because we are able to do something that will improve the way we live. And I think for us in Haw at Hawkins Brown, that is one of our key drivers. And actually, that's what keeps people within the practice, because what they realize is that actually this is a concern and this is how you're looking to address it. And you're willing to have that conversation. I'm interested in your view, Apinda, of leadership, sort of from Louise and I coach a lot of managers, leaders who tend to be, well, certainly older than you, often younger than me, but... Um, who are struggling to connect with and retain younger talent. I just wonder what you would say to people like that. Connecting to younger people, retaining their talents. I think one big thing I want to say as well is homeworking. I think that is because, I, you know, I've entered this practice now from home. So where I have day-to-day -day conversations with my mentor, 
that's absolutely fine but what about the other other things that I could learn from people in the practice are a lot more well informed than I am about certain things that I I miss out on those conversations as well because Mm. we're communicating via you know via Teams Zoom that's brilliant but it's a one-way conversation there's no one that's sitting on the other side to butt in and say hang on what about this because it's only you know it's me and the other person on the screen right I think that is quite a bit of a challenge but again like Hawkins Brown since I've been here for the past few weeks it's not just the mentor's job to cater and sort of like you said retain the creativity amongst us or even or communicate effectively it's, it's the whole practice's responsibility and it's the whole studio and that's why every sort of couple of weeks we have these kinds of meetings on zoom where it's kind of a bit more informal and we get to know everybody and we get to engage with other other people and I think that's absolutely fantastic even when it's not associated with work so even recently we had like a sort of show and tell amongst all of us where it's completely irrelevant from work we just get to know each other and had we not had that again it's just a two-way conversation it's not everybody right but I do feel as if if we were in the studio it would be hearing other conversations in the background I think that's just as important and I want to give a really good example as well. Once a few weeks ago, I did come into the studio on, not on my studio day. So I was kind of just sitting by myself point and I could hear like the urban design team doing their sort of presentation behind me. And while I was away working, I could hear their kind of um, inputs mm-hmm. about their project. And I had obviously no idea what was going on, but it was just so interesting to listen to how they kind of um, share the ideas and what they were kind of talking about for that particular project. So I feel like at home, it's, a lot more difficult to do that yeah it makes me feel quite emotional because of course that's that's one of the things you are missing out on and hopefully we'll all get it back one day because there's not just the listening to those conversations but there's learning from a from a learning point of view there's learning how to kind of conduct yourself in those conversations as well how to listen to other people how to moderate your opinion to you know how to how how to deal with that to and fro of maybe creative differences or operational differences and navigate that conversation and those are all such important skills not just for architects but for everybody and uh, they are much harder to get aren't they when we're working remotely like this and I think as time goes on we're probably going to have to be more creative and it sounds like Hawkins Brown are being creative about creating those opportunities to have that creative debate that is all part and parcel of studio and office life. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, I've been talking to lots of other practitioners because I think we've been going, God, March, it's been about say, six or seven months now, seven months. And it looks as though we've got mm-hmm. another six months of this in some shape or form. It looks like spring is when we're really going to come out of this. They're really feeling the strain. They're really feeling the strain. I think, uh, I think at first the industry was, it's fine, it's business as usual. We're fine, we're all connected. We've got these computers, et cetera. The reality is, is that actually, especially architecture, and when I look at other disciplines, I think in architecture, we do, I mean, I, I, did, a, I did a talk with Julian Demetz of uh, Demetz Forbes. Um, we do an annual talk at Westminster, uh, Westminster University. And he was saying how, apparently, I don't know if it's true, but I think you guys will know this. When you're, when you're with somebody, your heartbeats actually go into sync. Mm. And I sent a tweet saying, I wonder if like the tech people are going to weave this into the software, you know, (laughs) suddenly, you know, (laughs) through an app you've got on your wrist. And so suddenly, and I do think that what has been happening over Teams is that your point was, you know, is is so valid in terms of um, that sort of empathy. How does that leap through the waves through Zoom and Team? in terms of um, when you have an opinion to get across, et cetera. And what happens is that the other person on the other end, how are they feeling at the moment based on the fact that they're not sitting around their sort of creative group, right? Who, where normally, 
you know, they're drawing something. I oh, know, have you seen that, etc. Well, just what Pinder was saying, you know. And so suddenly what happens is that through osmosis, you're sort of becoming stronger because you've got this sort of family, you've got this network around you. That's your village, right? Whereas now what's happening is you're in isolation and then three days later, you're having a meeting to talk about something creative. That goes back to the university days. That's what happens at university, you know, the new pin up, etc. So in a way, what happens is that everybody has to work really, really, really hard you know, in, t- in terms of like how you communicate. But I think as a profession, we thrive of being together as a collective. Even in those practices where there is a very strict hierarchy where no one really talks, right? Because you do get practices like that and you get other practices that are really buzzy. And I was always speculating that actually this is where the managers that believe that they had social capital that didn't are going to really suffer. Because they still think everybody's really getting on. Yeah. But they were kidding themselves, yeah. right? They're the practices that are, either their people will leave or there will be huge unproductivity because it's the perception of the manager. Mm. Pre-COVID. The managers mm. who believe they have social capital. Will, yes. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Will not, will not thrive in this environment. Yeah, who, who actually, that people will who don't away. have social yeah. capital, right? So yeah. then people are going, yeah. well, I don't know. I, I need you to be sitting there to basically tell me what to do. And he, and they're yeah. sitting there going, well, actually, I thought, I thought everybody got on. I think that's so true. I think some people really understand their sort of cultural, this, the way that their social capital actually works and therefore have been able to quite quickly replicate that within a yeah. virtual setup. Whereas there are definitely some other people and I've coached and spoken to people who are in that position where actually it's more the sort of individual links with particular people rather than anything that the practice is sort of creating. So no, I think that's that's so important. And also easier, I mean, not easier because it's not going to be easy in any way, but more possible to effectively kind of assimilate new people and induct new people like Upinder Mm. into an organisation where Mm. that social capital has substance that people can feel even if they're having to feel it through ms teams (laughs) so one of the things that we are looking to do as a practice is to actually find ways where groups of six can actually go and and visit buildings right Mm. so you can actually go out and you can meet so i mean i I live in west london and um pinder lives in west london as well she only lives a few miles down the road and i did a little i did a little search of all the people that live in west london and only four people live in west london because all architects live in hackney and in stoke newington and in peckham right because that's where you you have to pay council tax there if you're an architect right whereas in the queen of suburbs no architects do live and but luckily pinder lives so and what I'm thinking of doing is actually um, doing a little a walking tour yeah, of, of some of the people within the practice in West London, where essentially we can just go for a coffee, we can walk, we can go and look at buildings, etc. Uh, I, I live in Ealing and, and there's a, a fantastic building that was designed by one of the most eminent um, neoclassical architects called John Soane. So John Soane designed um, the Soane Museum. Uh, that was his house. But um, Ealing used to be fields and... Um, he basically built his country home here and it's called Pitsanga Manor and I'm a trustee of Pitsanga Manor. And one of the things that I suggested um, Apinda do is, is volunteer. And because um, Apinda, bless her, likes to keep herself busy and she has more hours than anybody else in her week. Um, so she volunteers there uh, a couple of hours on a Saturday or a Sunday, I think it is. But in a way, it was an opportunity. And actually, there's several architectural graduates within Ealing that now volunteer there because I'm encouraging some of the younger people that are actually within the profession to be part of this sort of seminal building. And actually, in a way, it's great because they get out of the house and they're in this beautiful thing. And what they're able to do is to talk to visitors about 
why this building came about and what inspired it. And so I, th I think there's lots of opportunities out there where people can engage with buildings. It's a bit like the open house, but that happens once a year. But actually, I think there's, um, there's, there's, there's other ways that I think young people, especially now where, you know, I would say probably 20% of young architectural graduates are unemployed because they're finding it difficult to find a, a, a job. And I think things will pick up in spring and hopefully they'll find work there. But particularly for those, you know, for the younger graduates who are looking for work is maybe there's an opportunity for them to get involved in community groups, especially where there is a sort of a design angle to it. Yeah, I really like that. Just doing something, even if you kind of don't know what you're going to do next, just get involved in things and just speak to people in something that you're kind of interested in. I think that's what I spent a lot of my gap year doing. That's what I kind of stepped in, had a conversation with somebody, okay, spark this idea. I'm going to go do this now. I'm going to read this now. I'm going to go visit that now. Just experiment, right? You've got nothing to lose. And, and I'm so thankful that Harbinus suggested the Pitsanger Manor and for me to go volunteer there because now I just love it. It's something that I look forward to every weekend. And the reason why I love it is because again, like you overhear those conversations when visitors are coming in, they give their own opinion, whether it's right or wrong. It's just still their own personal interests about whether they like the wallpaper that they put up, you know? And it's just something that you can kind of take away and it also resonates with you. And sometimes it sparks new ideas and again, sparks new conversations with other people. And I think that's, I think having this conversation is really healthy and it's something that should remain, especially within our generation as well. Mm -hmm. and, and talking about face-to-face -face conversations where possible, right? Not just kind of on the phone, but you're kind of both there present I agree yeah. with different sorts of people as well, doesn't it? I mean, we've had a lot of conversations with leaders recently about unconscious bias and that sort of thing, and the importance of people experiencing and talking to people sort of outside their world, whether that's the architectural bubble or whatever it might be, but actually getting outside that. So you, your description there of going to Pitsanger Manor and actually hearing from the people visiting, I recognize that some of those might also be architects given the nature of the building, but obviously they're not all. So actually trying to get outside of our little circles and that sort yep. of thing, I think, yeah, crucial. I mean, I think that's what you find, especially with social media, and I mean, if you look at the algorithms that the people that the sort of technologists mm. in California are creating, essentially they're creating echo chambers, right? So what happens is that mm. you just effectively, you know, the reason why you read the paper that you read is because essentially you agree with it all. You know, what you should really be exactly. doing is re you should be reading <laughs> the paper that effectively is politically not to your liking, right? That's what you should be really doing, but you never do. And sure. actually, and actually, you know, granted in Pittsburgh, Manor, you, you, you can imagine you get lots of architects, but actually you get the community as well. You know, yeah. Ealing is a borough of 360,000 people. So what we're really trying to do is 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 open it up right open that yeah. space up and it's about having the broad a whole range of opinions to enable you to inform your own yeah and i guess and, that's one of the things that builds social capital as well just yes. bringing in that range of, yeah. of opinions and voices so that you don't have a few dominating ones who, who feel that everybody should share their opinion and their approach and their way of doing things yeah. And also I want to add, just to go back to sort of the initial point of having a mentor, like I'm speaking to my mentor about, you know, X, Y, and Z, but it's not just a one-way conversation. It's not just us two, and I'm not allowed to talk to anybody else in the fact is, is that I can speak to Harinda, I can speak to sort of someone else that's not even in my studio. And I think that's where the real kind of effective leadership is. It's not just mm. a one 
a one conversation which is leading us very nicely into what I think will be our final question because we're coming towards the end of the time but I'm just really interested in your respective views of what leadership is sort of coming from the different generations and different levels of the the practice come to either of you first sort of what is leadership to you leadership um leadership is having someone guide you or having a group of people to guide you into not what's correct but their actions are should be the example what they do amongst themselves and the kind of decisions that they make rather than telling me how to do that they do it themselves I watch and I learn and then Mm -hmm. I do it they do it I see it I put into practice where I make the mistakes they intervene and then we grow and not being not being scared creating an environment where you're not scared to share your opinion that is so important and I think it goes back to what Harbin said earlier about yeah not being intimidated because if you're not comfortable to approach somebody and ask them then you're never going to get anywhere so it's about I think that's where that's that's where good leadership actually comes into place that's great thank you for sharing that it sort of brought together actually a lot of what you have said throughout the the podcast I think about the framework and I guess you're talking a little bit about role modeling and that sort of thing there where you're watching something happening and then you're trying it yourself but with the freedom and the space perhaps to make a mistake to ask questions and those sorts of things I think that's great thank you and Harbinder your thoughts I think Harbinder covered it all and it's great it was a great (laughs) answer um a good leader is somebody who knows maybe it's a bit cliched but someone who really knows how to listen yeah i, yeah. I think we both agree with that yeah nothing cliche <laughs> uh, about that something you said earlier that there is evidence that's in neuroscience that says when somebody's really being listened to when somebody's listening and somebody's speaking and that interaction is happening in the best possible way their the, their brains actually um sink their brainwaves sink which is astonishing. So knowing how to listen um, as the final definition of leadership from many that came through. And this has been such a rich discussion. Mm. Thank you both very much for joining yeah, thank us. Thank you. And we wish you every every luck in your future career. Thank um, you very thank much. You, Thank you. Well, thanks okay. very much for having us.